God created the world right side up, and it didn't take long for man to turn everything upside down. And each one of us have, in big and small ways, done our own upside downing in the world. I have, I'm, I mentioned this to a friend of mine, I, I have turned my marriage upside down, my relationships with my kids upside down, with my parents, like I, I don't even need Satan to tempt me, to be honest with you, because <laughs> homeboy craves an upside down world until the pain gets too much. And then I begin praying for God to turn everything right side up again. And I'm not the only one. We probably all had experience ruining good things. Uh, we've made genuine commitments to do right and ended up doing wrong. We promised never to do bad things ever again until we did. And not only were we born in an upside down world, uh, everybody keeps turning right things upside down. And Jesus came to fix this. He said in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, he said, Repent of your sins and turn to God because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This whole idea of repenting of our sins to turn to God is Jesus addressing the upside down that is in you and me. Like we, we notice the upside down in other people before we notice it in ourselves. But if we're going to be honest, it's the upside down on the inside. One that we're, we have the most control over, but two is the one that's doing the most damage in our own lives. So he says, repent of that sin, the way that we contribute to the upside down. Turn to God who is right side up because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's now available to you. And this whole idea of the kingdom of, he of heaven being at hand is the idea that each one of us right now have available to us the opportunity to live in a right side up world. Like we can contribute to God's kingdom come, God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But that starts in each one of us. Jesus gave 126 different sermons on what it looks like to live in a right side up world. To live for the kingdom of God, which is now available to any person who's willing to live under the authority of God and to obey the will of God. Jesus said that if we seek first the kingdom of God, then everything else that we need in life, all the other stuff that we're using money to get, that we leverage power and influence and clout to get, can be gotten from God if we seek first his kingdom. And he opens his Sermon on the Mount with a description of his kingdom values. And today, we're looking at Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. So if you have a Bible, or if you have a cell phone, open it up to Matthew 5, 8. And here's what Jesus said. He said, God blesses those who are pure, for they will see God. For those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. All right, so here's a little experiment. Raise your hand if you are pure from sin. Raise your hand. <laughs> Raise your hand if your heart is pure. Like that's, of all the things that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, especially with these values that he says, our description of the kingdom of heaven and those who live for the kingdom of God. This is the one that I feel like I personally am farthest from. Most of us would probably admit to having the occasional, if not regular, impure thoughts or desires for things that we know don't line up with the will of God for our lives. 
right? So like when it comes to me identifying as somebody whose heart is pure, I feel like I would be pretentious or would be a liar if I were to say that that is a description of who I am. But Jesus said it's those people that God favors. Those are the ones that God gives his joy, his contentment, fulfillment to. And those are the ones who end up seeing God. But that leaves me a little discouraged if I'm going to be honest. So what does it mean that Jesus says that God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God? And that's what we're going to be looking at. Like, what exactly does it mean to be pure in heart? I mean, it can't mean somebody who has never sinned because the Bible says in Romans chapter 3 that there is no one who does good, not even one. Thirteen verses later, he says, for all have sinned. Everybody falls short of God's standard. So if everybody falls short of God's standard, then what does it mean to be a person whose heart is pure? I wanted to know exactly what Jesus was saying in his own language in today's teaching. So I looked up the word heart and pure in Greek to say exactly what, to see exactly what Jesus was saying when he used these words. And the Greek word for heart is cardia. It's the inner self, including thoughts, desires, will, intellect, and emotions. And if I'm going to be honest, I don't even know if I can say that my inner self is pure, that my thoughts are pure, that my desires, my will, my intellect, and my emotions are pure. So what does the word pure mean? And the word that Jesus said was, it's the Greek word katharos, and it means to be clean, to be clear, to be morally cleansed. All right, now, it's that first part. It's I mean, to say that my heart is clean, I'm beginning to wonder, does it mean that that has that it's always been clean because that's not true. So I like where I'm getting to when I see that what Jesus said is whose heart has been morally cleansed. Because while my heart can get awfully dirty, it can also become awfully clean. I mean, that's the hack that those of us who are followers of Jesus have, is that we know that the debt, and we talked about this last week, that we've created between us and God, the hole that exists that we've been digging between us and God has been filled by Jesus who laid down his life to cover that hole, to fill that hole so that I could be reconciled to God. The Bible says, not by my righteousness, but by his. So I can be cleansed, not because I'm a person who's never been dirty, but because the person who never was dirty gives me his cleanliness when I repent of my sins and turn to God, which is the reason why Jesus starts off this whole thing by saying, repent of your sin and turn to God and live for the kingdom of heaven, which is now at hand. So a more literal translation of Matthew chapter 5, verse 8 could be, blessed are the clean in heart, for they will see God. In Greek culture, Katharos was used both physically and ceremonially to refer to something that was cleaned up, that was cleansed, and was purified from defilement or filth. And when applied to the heart, cardia, it signifies a heart that's been cleansed from sin and hypocrisy, a heart that is single-mindedly devoted to God. Such a pure heart is able to truly know and to see God. 
So I think that there are three different descriptives, identifiers of someone whose heart is pure. And the first of these three descriptors of a person whose heart is pure is that their heart has been freed from sin. This doesn't mean that you've never sinned, but it means that you didn't leave your sin in there. I think one of the best examples of this, and I've used him a lot because he's he's actually referenced a lot in the Bible, and it's David, who was not, he was not a good father. He wasn't. He wasn't a good husband either. And he wasn't even always a morally pure man. Like he committed adultery and he committed murder. But he's also the only one in the whole Bible that the, that the Bible describes as a man after God's own heart, which is crazy. Because the Bible includes all of these things that he did that were corrupt. So what made David, a man who was obviously corrupt, free from sin? And it was repentance. After David had committed adultery with his best friend's wife, gotten her pregnant, and then murdered his best friend to cover it up and to act like he was marrying his widow to take care of her, and then she just got, it was a honeymoon pregnancy or whatever, like that's what he was hoping would happen. He was confronted about his sin. And he genuinely, like he, it wasn't just that he'd gotten caught. I mean, because when he got caught, it wasn't public. Like his getting caught was a prophet telling him, You've done this, didn't you? And David was like, yeah, I did. And he, the Bible says he tore his clothes and he, he weeped and he's mourned for his sin. Like when he was confronted with sin, David never lied and covered it up. Like he didn't do that. He owned up to his sin is what he did. And he repented and he wrote a prayer of repentance, which we know as Psalm chapter 51, in response to the sexual sin that he committed with Bathsheba. And in Psalm chapter 51, verse 10, David said this, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. That's what it means to be freed from sin. It's that you ask God simply by faith, God, forgive me. Now, in the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament, before Jesus ever showed up to permanently pay for mankind's sins, our sin was temporarily atoned for by the sacrifice of a bull or a sheep or a goat, or if you were poor, even a dove, right? Like we had to make an atonement for our sin. We, by faith, trusted that God would accept this sacrifice as a payment for the debt that we had created between us and God. And by faith, we accepted that we were forgiven, and they did that looking forward to the day that God would show up in human history and make himself that sacrifice. And so just like David, by faith, trusted that someday God would pay for our sins. We on the other side of Jesus look back and trust that God did pay for our sins. So in the same way that Abraham and David were made right with God by faith, we, in our day, they before the time of Jesus, us after the time of Jesus, are also made right with God the same way, by faith. And so we place our faith and trust in God to atone for our sins. And we make the same prayer, God created in us a pure heart. 
God, forgive me. Take away my sin. Psalm chapter 24, verse 3 and 4 says, Who may climb the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Who's allowed to stand in the presence of God? Only those whose hands and hearts are pure. This is written by a man who had done some pretty bad stuff. But what made his heart and his hands pure was his repentance. Who do not worship idols and never tell lies. We don't cover our sin. We own up to our sin. That's the first description of a heart, of a person whose heart is pure, is that we are honest about the corruption that is in us. We freely admit that we are as broken as everybody else in the world and are desperately in need of God forgiving us for what we've done. Those are the people that Jesus says that God favors. Those are the people who begin to see God at work in their life. They own up to their sin. They don't hide it. Secondly, they're fully devoted to God. Now, I don't know that I'll ever be fully perfect and without sin. I don't know that I'll ever get to that place. I mean, I think on the other side of eternity, yeah, when my sin nature is removed and the Bible says that my it dies with this mortal body, but then we're resurrected with a new body, the Bible says, which is created perfect without being tainted by sin. But until that time, I don't know that I will ever be fully, like, clean, like, continually clean. I can, I can clean it, but I, will I ever get to a place where I stop making it dirty? And I don't know that that's ever going to happen, but what I can be is committed to keeping it clean once it's become dirty. It's like no athlete is perfect. Tom Brady, even after he became the greatest quarterback of all time, still threw interceptions. He was still sacked and he threw incompletions, but he stayed committed to keeping himself athletically fit and to working on his craft. I think of like the greatest home run hitter of all time is Barry Bonds. He has 762 home runs. It's the most home runs in Major League Baseball history. He has the most home runs in a single season, which is 71 home runs. But he had 1,539 strikeouts. Like he struck out twice as much as what he hit home runs. And nobody remembers the home runs. All they remember, excuse me, nobody remembers the strikeouts. All they remember are the home runs. Because every time he struck out, he got his butt back into the batting cages, worked on his craft. And then when the game time came, he got his butt back in the batter's box again. So he struck out twice as often as he hit home runs. But what made him great it was, was, was steroids. That's what made him great. I'm sorry. I wanted to say that. What made him great was his commitment to keep getting in the batter's box. He was devoted to hitting home runs and didn't let his strikeouts discourage him. And that's what I'm telling you that God honors. Like you and I are going to fail, but what God loves is not our failure for sure, but our refusal to let our failure and our, like to sin, define us. We recognize that my identity is found in the complete work and life of Jesus and is not defined 
By the way, I continually fail to meet up to that standard, but the idea that I embrace the standard he's set and repent of all of the ways I fall short of that. I own up to my sin and I keep bringing it back to God. Like, I don't want my kids to go, like when they mess up dad, I don't want my kids to hide from me in their room because they're ashamed of the way that they keep struggling with their math. I want them to bring their math to me. Dad, I'm struggling with this. Teach me how to do it. And when they get it wrong, they bring it back to me. And when they get it wrong, they bring it back to me. And when they get it wrong, they bring it back to me. I don't want my kids' failures to fill them with shame and keep them from me. I want them to be honest about the way that they've failed. Bring it to me for help. I've been a baseball coach and a basketball coach my entire kids' lives. And I never get upset at the shots that they miss unless they're shooting outside their range. You need to stay in your range. I want them to shoot every shot. Like I, I tell them, if you're open and in your range, pull the trigger. Like, like if you're in the batter's box and like I get more frustrated when a kid strikes out because he was looking at a pitch than if he swung and missed. You know what I mean? I mean, if you're, the baseball metaphor might miss you, but a lot of times kids are just afraid to swing. So they'll stand there and just watch the pitches come through and they'll, They'll strike out never swinging. That's unbelievably frustrating for me as a dad, as a dad and a coach. I want my kids and every other kid on my team, dude, swing the bat. I moved kids up in the batting order, not because they were the strongest hitters, but they were the most consistent hitters. I told the kids at the beginning of the season, put the bat on the wall, ball, man. Like, I don't even care if you get thrown out at first base. I'm looking for bat on ball percentages. That's what I was looking for. I want kids that are going to keep trying, keep trying. That's what it means to be fully devoted to God. It's not that I live a better life than you. I'm living a better life than the life I was living yesterday. That's what that means. I am fully devoted to the process of becoming more like Jesus. And that doesn't happen if I hide my sin or if I hide in my room from God because I'm ashamed of my sin. That's the first, the first thing is that we stay clean from sin. The second thing is that we stay devoted to God. And you can have the same heart, you can have a pure heart by having the same devotion that Barry Bonds had to baseball, just you and I have, to getting back up, cleaning the sin off our shoes, like poop off our shoes, and following after Jesus again. Paul said to his protege, Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, he said, run from anything that stimulates youthful lusts. Instead, pursue righteous living, faithfulness, love, and peace. Enjoy the companionship of those who call on God with pure hearts. He says, dude, recognize all of the ways in which you fail. Flee youthful lusts. Like you have a pet sin and I have one also and, and my wife has one and, and because I know my wife and I'm not sharing hers with you, it's none of your business. I'm not sharing mine with you either. She's fully aware of the sin I struggle with most. I'm aware of the sin she struggles with most and they're different sins. And Paul says to recognize the sin that you've struggled with since your youth and run from that. Pursue those things that you know keep you from that sin and start hanging out with other people who are doing the same thing. My son got to go to a wedding last weekend with 
the uber rich. He said it's the richest way. They easily had to spend over $100,000. Like a state senator showed up to give a toast, and the owner of a winery supplied the alcohol for this for this wedding event. And we were talking about the way that they think differently about money. And the truth is, and you know this from an economic standpoint, that you become the amalgamation of the four or five closest friends that you keep. Like my wife and I, I don't, we have, we have, we have side hustles, right? Like, or we have a side hustle. We do, we do real estate. We've been doing this since 2001 uh, with my father-in-law. And now we do stuff on our own and we have friends that do it also. And, and keeping friends with other people that do real estate helps us to improve our game as real estate investors. And Paul just says the same thing is true for your spiritual development. He says, enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. He says, if you want to improve your game and your baseball player, hang out with people with better batting averages, right? If you're a small business owner, hang out with other people who started off with a small business and then grew it to a medium-sized business. And if you want to grow in your relationship with God, spend time in the company of those who walk with God. And then you will begin to experience God in the same ways that they experience God. The third thing, number one, is we, we keep ourselves free from sin. Number two, we're motivated to follow after God. We're fully devoted to God. And number three, we're motivated by love. Have you ever done something so bad that you were filled with self-contempt? Like, I, I've, I've done this. And again, I'm not going to give you descriptions because it's not, none of your business. But it's weird, my response to this, because I'll do something and I am so incredibly disappointed with myself that I don't let myself come back to God right away. I don't, like, I feel like I need to, this is stupid, I know it is, to punish myself by not letting myself find forgiveness. And I, I won't repent because I don't feel like I've, this, I know this sounds dumb, like when I say it out loud, it sounds ridiculous, but I feel like I haven't earned enough credit with God to say that I'm sorry and to be forgiven again. And like I, Metaphorically speaking, self-flagellate. I, I, it's it's dumb. I know it is. Um, but when I finally get over myself, and, and truthfully, that's pride, feeling as though I can earn the right to repent. When I get over myself and do finally repent of that sin for the millionth time, and am reminded that my slate genuinely has been cleaned, because I finally repented, it fills me with something completely different than self-loathing. It's, it's gratitude. That's what it is. And that gratitude is the motivation for me not only to not do that again, but to genuinely love God that he would forgive me from making the same mistake so many times. Like there's nobody in my life that would forgive me if I had sinned against them as frequently as I had sinned against God. 
Like I could do enough dirt to make my wife leave me, and she's a godly woman, but I could do enough evil that she would feel like she had to get away. But you and I have never done enough evil to have made God feel that way about us. And when I'm reminded of that, like the gratitude, like I don't, I don't stay away from sin because I'm afraid that God will punish me because I know my sins have already been punished. Jesus took the punishment for those. And that doesn't make me want to keep doing it. Because if you fully grasp the corruption that is in your heart and the like unfathomable grace that God continues to give you, the Bible says that where sin abounds, God's grace even more abounds. Like it like the most rotten thing you've ever done, God is fully capable of forgiving you of that and more. And when the weight of that grace settles in on your heart, it moves you to love God. Genuinely love God. And that's what Jesus says that God favors. My job isn't to manufacture this kind of love for God, according to Jesus. My job is to keep my heart clean, to trust in the goodness of God and the fact that he forgives when I repent. And the natural byproduct of this is love for God and his kingdom. So having a pure heart starts with confession and repentance, but extends to an ongoing devotion to God. So How can I cultivate a pure heart in a world today that is so impure, in a world that is so corrupt, surrounded by people who make it so easy for me to feel and to do bad? How do I do this? Well, we're going to look at some things that Jesus and the apostles said, and what I want to do as I actually want to give you a list of three things. Excuse me, six things. I don't know why I said three. I do know why I said I said three, because there's three on one page and that continues on the next page and there's three more. I'm going to give you six actual things that you can do to begin cultivating a heart that's pure. Six things. And I want you to write them down. I, I can't make you write them down and me giving you these six things that the Bible says would help you cultivate a heart that's pure is great, but if you don't actually do any of these six things, then then what's the point of what I'm about to share with you? You know what I mean? Like you need to write this down and and you need to pick one or two of them to start doing or else you're going to keep struggling with a heart that is impure and you're going to live the rest of your life never seeing God at work in your life. And I don't believe you want that. Or else, why would you still be listening? Why would you be a part of this service? Like there's something in you that just, you want to see God do something in your life. And Jesus said that you can cultivate a heart that is pure. And those whose hearts are pure, God favors and he will make sure that they see him. The first thing that you can do according to the scriptures is that you can guard your heart from those things that are impure. 
like there are things that my wife needs to guard against for her sin. And there are things I need to guard against for my sin. Like there are certain things that trigger that sin in me. And that thing that triggers me doesn't even trigger my wife for her sin because her sin is different. Now in my head, I'm thinking specifically of what the sin is that we both struggle with more than the other sins. So for me to be around that trigger is even sinful because I know what it does to me. But for her to be around that isn't necessarily even sinful because that thing in and of itself isn't the bad thing. It's being around that thing and what it does to me and the way that it feeds the monster in me that makes it bad. So Solomon says in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, guard your heart above all else because it determines the course of your life. And it does. You know it does. Like you've done bad things that have changed the direction of your heart because you left your heart unguarded, right? And it took you to a place you didn't want to go. And by God's grace, he may have set you back up on the road that you were on, or maybe he just sent a detour and he got you where you might have ended up going anyway because God is good and he's gracious. But Solomon says the thing that you can do to make sure that your heart is pure is that you can just guard it from the things that you know trigger it. Number one, guard it. So what triggers your sin? Well, I don't, I can't answer that question for you. What triggers your sin? And you need to put up a fence between you and that. Even if that thing in and of itself is not bad, because you know what happens in your heart when you expose yourself to that thing, you need to put a fence up there and you need to guard your heart. That's number one. Number two is you need to change your focus. Colossians chapter three, verse 10 says, think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. I need to think, I need to constantly remind myself that it's not money that brings me security. It's God that I find my security in. Because regard, like real estate can bottom out. We've already lived through that in 2008, right? A rental property can go without a tenant and then I'm screwed, right? Like what I need more than real estate, what you need more than stocks, what you need more than investments, is you need a dependence on God as a sole provider of your security and your safety. And it's not that you don't handle your finances with integrity and with wisdom. It's that I don't put my hope and confidence in stinking paper and deeds, right? My confidence is in God. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. So what are some things that I can do to make sure that my confidence in God, not things in the earth, is that I use the things that are on the earth to serve God rather than asking God to serve me by giving me more things on earth. That's what I can do. I can take a more eternal approach to the things of earth. That's it. I look at everything that I own. I love the way my dad says this. He says, everything that you own is either a tool to be leveraged for the kingdom of God or it is an idol that distracts you from the kingdom of God. Everything you own is a tool or an idol. And what you do with it and who it serves tells you which one it is. That's number two. Number three is follow Jesus' example. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, 
the writer of Hebrews says, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and completes our faith, who because of the joy awaiting him on the other side, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor besides God's throne. Jesus looked at the shame the pain, the torture, the difficulty, and the suffering of the cross differently because he knew the joy that was on the other side of going through what God had put in front of him. And Jesus becomes my example. So the way that I guard my heart, the way that I actually cultivate a heart that is pure is I willingly go through hard things because I trust that God is sovereign and he'll use this hard thing in my life for good. I can reconcile with a spouse that has done something wrong to me. I can reconcile with a person at work who I think is a jerk. I can serve selfless people. I can love unlovable people. I can do these things for the joy and the confidence that I have in God to favor me when I do these things. Like when I love unconditionally, when I serve sacrificially, I trust that God sees that and when my heart is pure in doing this, because I followed the example of Jesus who loves unlovable people, who serves selfish people and forgives unforgivable things. And he did all of these things for the joy that was on the other side of those things. I can for the joy that's set on the other side of these difficulties and that joy being my fullness being met in God, I can go through hard things too. That's number three, number four is I can obey God's voice in my heart. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 says this, So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your life. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. That's how I can cultivate a heart for, that's pure. I love this one, and I feel like this is the one that I depend on most. It's that spider sense that you get when you know if I go here, I know that I'm going to do this, I'm going to end up doing this, I'm going to regret it. You know that spider sense that you get before you do this that will lead to that, that'll end up taking you to that? That's the voice of God's Holy Spirit. He's the one that's at work in you, the Bible says, conforming you to the image of Jesus. And when there's something in you that doesn't match the life of Jesus, the warning bells start going off in the back of your heart. That's how you cultivate a heart that is pure. Is when you start smelling the sin before you step in it and you step in a different place that's when you've learned to obey the voice of God's Spirit in your heart. That's number four. Number five is you prioritize worship with your church family. That's in the Bible. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25 says, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together with other Christians, the body of Christ, in the gathering of the household of faith, the gathering, the Greek word for that is ekklesia that's been translated into the word church. It's the gathering of Christians together on a weekly basis. Let us not neglect our gathering together. Let us not neglect attending a worship service with our church family as some people do, but encourage one another especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. One of the things that I can do to cultivate a heart that is pure is I keep putting myself around those people who will lift my spiritual temperature, who raise my game. It's the idea that I'm hanging out with better people with better batting averages. It's 
prioritizing a weekly gathering of the household of faith that keeps my batting average up. That's what it does. That's how I cultivate a heart. That's the fifth thing in number six. It's memorizing scripture. Psalm 119, nine through, uh, verse 11. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I have verses of scripture that I have memorized that deal with the sin that I know that I struggle with. And my wife has verses memorized that help her deal with the sin that is in her heart. And what is horribly inconvenient is how sometimes when I crave those sins, God brings those verses back to my mind. (laughs) Why? So that I can keep my heart pure. But if you've not memorized any scripture, like remember, like you, I shot an arrow into the air and it fell to earth, I know not where. Do you remember memorizing that poem when you were in elementary school? Here I am in my 50s and I can remember that that verse. Well, we do the exact same thing with scriptures. We memorize God's word that deals with Sean's sin so that the Holy Spirit has ammunition to use against the sin that is in my heart. And these are six actual things that you can begin doing to cultivate a heart that is pure. Jesus came to turn the upside down, right side up again. And this happens as we adopt the values of the kingdom of God. Having a heart that is cleansed from sin, fully devoted to God and motivated by love for him. And though no one, no one, none of us are perfect, we can continually repent, draw near to God and run from temptation. And like baseball legend Barry Bonds, who kept swinging despite his strikeouts, we can discipline ourselves to keep swinging in the batter's box. We cultivate purity in our hearts by guarding it, by focusing it on the example of Jesus. We can obey God's spirit. We gather together with other people who are improving their batting averages and by memorizing scripture. These are the people who experience God in their lives. So in closing, what areas of impurity is God revealing in your heart that he wants you to be cleansed from? How can you practically guard your heart this week against the sin that kicks your butt? What fence do you need to build between you and it? Do you need to repent of any sin that is cluttering your heart right now? What devotional habits or spiritual disciplines can you implement to keep your heart focused on Jesus? And how can you gain a spiritual discipline by engaging more frequently with this church family? What needs to change in your rhythm to prioritize gathering with the other followers of God, the other saints, the rest of those who are of the household of faith? Like you go to work every week but we go to church when it's convenient. And maybe because we're seeking a life of convenience, that's part of the reason why we struggle spiritually in our relationship with God and we don't see God at work in our life. Because Jesus said that those whose hearts are pure, those are the ones that see God. And if you're wanting to see God at work in your life, tell him, let's pray. God, I love you with all of my heart and I'm asking you to help me prioritize spiritual disciplines. And every time I strike out, let me work on my swing and get my butt back in the batter's box. God, I make that prayer for all of us. 
help us to hang out with other people with better batting averages, for us to prioritize gathering with your church family to memorizing scripture that your Holy Spirit can use to prompt us to keep away from the sin that we end up always regretting anyway. God, help us to keep our hearts pure. And I pray that we'll see you at work in our lives. Dear God, please, for everyone who's a part of this service, let them see God. We ask this in Jesus' name, and we all say it together, amen.